wonder if you've ever heard someone utter the words after a marriage or maybe uh, well into a marriage, she settled. She settled. Disappointing words to be sure, but they usually refer um, to a bright, well put together young lady who hasn't married as well as everyone thought that she should. People would say her new husband is an okay fellow, but he clearly isn't the provider. He isn't the leader that we thought that she would be fit for. I don't have anyone particular in mind, so ladies, uh, you don't need to elbow your husbands or speak to them about this when you get home. But we all know what this phrase means. She settled. And we all know what it means, not necessarily because we did so in marriage, but because we do so so often in very many arenas of our lives. We settle. All of us can relate to what that is like. Some of us regret that in school we settled for a C rather than pressing on to get an A. Some of you are doing that right now and you need not settle. Some of us have settled for a career path that is easy instead of striving to be all that God intends for us to be. All the time we find ourselves doing this with our diets, with our free time, in our relationships, with our money. We find ourselves settling for what may be good or okay, but not pressing on to be or do what is best. And we often set the bar just as low on the spiritual playing field as we do everywhere else. Lots of people, some of them in this room this morning, are settling for being less than you could be, for knowing God less than you should, for loving Christ less than you might. You've settled. Settled for being a mere churchgoer instead of going hard after God all seven days of the week. Settled for a surface-level devotional time so that you can check it off your list instead of pressing on to the deeper things of Christ. Some of you have settled, perhaps, for raising moral, good citizen kind of children instead of children that are passionate about Jesus Christ. Settled for a form of godliness while denying its power. All of us know what it's like at times in our lives, and some of us as a pattern in our lives, to settle for second or third or fourth best. Now, That's precisely the kind of spiritual low-sightedness that the book of Hebrews takes aim against. Chapter after chapter after chapter. The epistle to the Hebrews was written to a people who were churchgoers in the first century. Many of them were certainly Christians. Based on what we read, we find they were probably mostly Christians of Jewish ancestry. But they were Christians, church-going people who had settled. They weren't striving to be all that they might. They weren't striving to know God as well as they should. They had settled. And as we read on in the pages of this letter, we're going to be introduced to these people and we're going to discover that they had been captivated by all sorts of secondary issues. They were all excited about things that are important but not best. You'll read on and you'll find that they were excited and infatuated with angels, venerating the angels. They were excited about venerating the prophets. They were happy to pour over the laws of Moses and to pick them through and to find out every little jot and tittle. They were thrilled to observe and meditate on the beauty of the temple 
and the glory and the pomp of all of its ceremonies and sacrifices. All of these things that weren't bad things, but weren't the best thing. They were all excited about angels and prophets and Moses and the temple and the sacrifices, but they rarely ever seem to get around to talking about, thinking about loving Jesus, who is best of all. They'd settled, if you will, for all the trappings of religion, which again weren't necessarily bad things, but they left the best thing virtually untouched. And they have spiritual ancestors living in America today, don't they? People who are more consumed with robes and rituals than they are with Christ. People who are more excited about charts and graphs and and timelines than they are with Jesus. People who are more interested in trinkets and Christian slogans than they are in really knowing the Word of God, both written and incarnate. That's what these people were like. The Hebrew Christians, they were like children who pick and eat the crust off of the pie and leave the succulent filling undisturbed. It's foolishness, but this is what they were doing spiritually. It seems as you read the letter that they almost could have been happy just to return to the Old Testament, just to set aside Jesus and to go back to the way things were, because that's what they were really excited about. And so the author of Hebrews has some very startling things to say to them, some reminders that ought to be givens, but that they needed to be told again. And as you follow through the book of Hebrews, you'll find that his main message is Jesus is better. Jesus is best, in fact. In chapter 1, today we're going to see him telling them that Jesus is better than the prophets. And then also in chapter 1 that he's better than the angels. Chapter 3, he tells them Jesus is better than Moses. Chapter 4, he is better than Joshua. Chapter 7, he is better than the priesthood. Chapter 9, he is better than the temple. And he is better than the sacrifices. As important as all of those things are, Jesus is better. The message of the book of Hebrews to these first century Christians is Jesus is better than all the religious pie crusts on which you are content to nibble. And he's better than all the pie crusts on which we are content to nibble today. He is best of all. And the message of Hebrews is don't settle for second best. Jesus is best of all. It's a message I hope that we'll take to heart these next five months. That's the message of Hebrews. What about the author, just briefly? You may have noticed that I referred to the author of this epistle simply as the author of Hebrews. I'm fully aware that in some of your King James versions, the heading at the top of the page that you're turned to this morning says the epistle of St. Paul to the Hebrews. And so you say, why are you calling the author? Why don't you just call him by his name, Paul? I simply want to point out to you before we dive into the book that the, the titles of the books of the Bible aren't part of the original inspired Greek text. In other words, if we could go back and find the actual first copy of the book of Hebrews, it didn't have a title to it. It was just a letter that was mailed out. There was no title at the top. And so these titles, whether yours says Hebrews or the Epistle to the Hebrews or the Letter to the Hebrews or the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews, those titles were all added by the people who published these Bibles uh, in modern times so that we would look and say, oh, this is the letter that we commonly call Hebrews. But the titles that were added weren't inspired. And we turn to Hebrews, and if you have a King James, you discover then that the, the men in 1611 who put together the King James Bible believed that Paul was the man who wrote Hebrews. And so they added his name to the title. And they may be correct. 
But if they are correct, this would be the only letter that Paul ever wrote onto which he didn't sign his name. The beginning sentence of every other letter of Paul, the very first word of every other letter of Paul is Paul, an apostle to so-and-so. We don't have that here. In 2 Thessalonians 3, in fact, he says that having his name signed on the letter is a distinguishing mark in every letter that he wrote. We don't have it here. And so since we don't have it here, we can't be certain that Paul was the author. So who was the author? Well, some people think it was Barnabas. Some people think it was Apollos. Some people think it was someone else. In the end, we have to confess that the, the author of Hebrews doesn't tell us who he is. We don't know exactly who wrote the epistle to the Hebrews. But it's not important, is it? Or he would have told us. What we do know for certain is twofold. Number one, ultimately God wrote this letter, right? All scripture is inspired by God. And so whoever the human instrument was, God is the one who's behind it. And that's authority enough for us to consider the book. Second, we know from reading the book that whomever God used to put these words down with paper and ink was a man who was desperately concerned that these Christians who were sitting at a table spread full with spiritual morsels, that they would recognize that amongst all those things, Jesus is the sweetest and most attractive and most nourishing and most needful food of all. That's what's important. And that's enough information, I think, to make us listen this morning. So having considered briefly the message of this book, Jesus is better than anything that you can appreciate. Jesus is best of all, and having thought about its author, let's now consider what it says Read with me beginning in verses 1 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Here is the beginning of 13 chapters worth of passionate preaching with the same message again and again and again. Jesus is best. He is best of all, says the author. He is better than the prophets, verses 1 through 3. He is better than the angels, verses 3 and 4. He is best of all. And so by implication, which he will tease out in the rest of the book, don't settle for second best when you have the best at your fingertips. Don't settle for something less than Christ. Seek Him. Love Him. Pursue Him. Feed on Him. And my prayer is that God will help us do those things just now with this book under two headings. I already mentioned Jesus is better than the prophets and Jesus is better than the angels. So first, Jesus, verses 1 through 3, is better than the prophets. Listen to verse 1 in the beginning part of the second verse. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. I know what he's saying. God in times past spoke in the prophets. But now, he speaks in his son. There's a deliberate contrast here, isn't there, between 
back then and now, between the prophets and the Son, between what is good, the prophets, and what is best, His Son. It's not a comparison of bad versus good. He's not denigrating the prophets here. He's saying the prophets are are wonderful, but the Son is better even than them. He's reminding us who have the teachings of Jesus, who have the story of his life, who know his name, that we have a distinct advantage over those Old Testament believers who only knew him through the misty foreshadowings that the prophets gave them. Jesus is better than the prophets. Again, that's not to minimize the prophets. For clearly it says in verse 1 that God spoke through them. God spoke through the prophets, so it's important that we continue to study and know what God said through those men. Nor is it to say that their books, their writings, are somehow less inspired than those writings about Jesus in the New Testament. We already said, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is inspired by God. He's not minimizing the prophets. Well, what he's essentially saying in verses 1 and 2 are, is this. Jesus is greater The prophets are great, but Jesus is infinitely greater than they are. And he's greater, he goes on to explain, in several ways. I want to give you five ways. First, Jesus is greater than the prophets the way a hero is greater than a storyteller. The way a hero is greater than a storyteller. If I were to speak to you this morning of Lord Charnwood, very few of you would know who that man is or whom I was speaking about. Who? Lord Charnwood. But if I were to say to you the name of Abraham Lincoln, all of you would nod in appreciation. That's because Abraham Lincoln is the hero and Lord Charnwood was just the storyteller, the man who wrote his classic biography. The hero of the story is always greater than the person telling the story. And so it is even on a grander scale with Jesus and the prophets. The prophets were great men. They are honored and should be honored for their part in telling God's great story of redemption of His people, of grace, and of the coming Messiah King. But they're only the storytellers, and Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is greater than the prophets the way a hero is greater than a storyteller. He's greater also the way a son is greater than a servant. Look at verse 2 again. In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things. Jesus is heir of all things. Jesus is the rightful owner of the universe. And He awaits that time when God will hand over the kingdom to Him. Jesus owns it all. And again, you see readily then the difference between He and the prophets. The prophets were something like the prodigal father's hired men in Luke 15. Remember the prodigal son? Even my father's hired men are better off than me. The hired men were well fed. They were respected. They were well treated. They were privileged. But when the heir came home, when the son returned from a far off country, the hired men weren't rubbing shoulders with the son, were they? No, they were washing his feet and cooking his feast. And in the same way, Jesus, the heir, is so much greater than the servants. Both us and the prophets, as great as they were. Jesus is better than the prophets the way a son is greater than a servant. Thirdly, He's better than the prophets the way a creator is greater than the created. The way a creator is greater than the created. Verse 2, the last part of the verse. Through whom He, 
also made the world. God made the world through Jesus, he's saying. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he did so according to Hebrews 1.2 and according to Colossians chapter 1, which we read a few moments ago. He created the world by the instrumentality of his son. Through Jesus, also he, God, made the world. Jesus made the world. Way back when, when God was speaking and creating, it was the Word, John 1, 1, who was with God and who was God and who was Jesus, who was speaking and creating. You know what that means? It means that Jesus created the prophets. Jesus made the prophets and He owned them. And He made you and He made me and He owns us. We are but created beings and so were the prophets, but He is the Creator. He is better than them all. Fourthly, He's better than the prophets the way the sun is greater than the moon. The way the sun is greater than the moon. Look at verse 3. Jesus is the radiance of His glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature. That phrase, exact representation, is referring to the imprint that you find on a coin. If you want to find what God looks like, you look on Jesus who is the imprint of the Father. But he also says he's the radiance of God's glory. And I think the author of Hebrews wants us to think of the Trinity like we think of the sun, S-U-N, the sun in the sky. We have all these ways of describing the Trinity, water, ice, and steam, the egg, the clover, the apple, and so on. And all those things can be helpful. But I think the biblical example of how we understand the Trinity is the radiance of the sun versus the sun itself. Think about it. The sun is a great flame in the sky, a great ball of burning gas in the sky that is inapproachable in its intensity. And yet it provides life to all of the earth. So it is with God. He is at one time a loving heavenly father who gives life to the earth. And at the same time, Hebrews 12, 29, a consuming fire. The sun is millions of miles away and inapproachable by us. Even if we wanted to, we couldn't get to the sun. And if we got there, we would die well before we ever got there because of the brightness and the harshness of the fire. And so it is with God. He is the Creator. We are created. We are separated from Him. But yet we can see the sun. This great ball of gas that we cannot approach, that's difficult to look at directly, we can still see it not by getting close to the white-hot gases and watching them bounce to and fro phonetically. We see the sun through its radiance. That's what the author is saying. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the way the sun radiates light to the earth. When you sit in this room, even if we turned out the lights that are here artificially, you would be able to see my face because of the radiance of the sun that is permeating everywhere that we go. When it is daytime, we are constantly walking in the sunlight, in the radiance of the sun. Even when the clouds are shining, or the clouds are blocking the sun from shining, the sun shines through. We see the radiance of the sun because we see everything that is. And sometimes, maybe when we're walking through the woods on a sunny day, we see the radiance of the sun breaking through in shafts of light, sunbeams. And we see it then as well. And we recognize that though we're not on the sun, and though we can say in one sense the sun is millions of miles away, yet at the same time we are walking in the sun. 
aren't we? We walk in the sun. We walk through the sun. We see the radiance of the sun. And the radiance is just as much sun as that big ball of gas that sends it off. And so it is with Christ. He has come to the world that we might see. He has come to the world to show us what God is like. We can't approach God in heaven, but He has come to us. His radiance has come and we live and move and have our being in Him if we are believers. Christ is here with us, shining His light upon us. Just to finish the analogy, you might think of the Spirit as the heat given off by the sun. You can't see the sun's heat, but you know that it's there and you can't live without it. And so it is with the Holy Spirit for the believer. We cannot, never will see the Holy Spirit, but we cannot live without the Holy Spirit. And we know that He is there. He provides spiritual warmth to us. So you have the sun in the heavens three in one. The great white hot ball of gas, the radiance that it gives off that gives light and beauty to the earth, and the heat also that it gives off that provides life to the earth. Three different manifestations, but all of them equally sun. And so it is with the Trinity. Three persons, the Son and the Spirit emanating from the Father, working on the earth in ways that the Father is not present here, allowing us to know God up close and yet not be consumed with fire. This is God. Now how does that relate to the prophets? What does it have to do with them? We're saying that Jesus, the radiance of God's glory, God's light here on earth that we can see and know, is better than the prophets. Well, the prophets surely shed the light of the glory of God to us, don't they? You read the book of Isaiah and you can see the glory of God there. You read about the prophet Elijah and you can see the glory of God at work in his life. But those prophets shine the radiance of the glory of God to us like the moon provides light to the earth and shines a reflection of the sun. The moon by itself, apart from the radiance of sun, is just a big ball of dust, scarred, cratered, imperfect. So were the prophets. They were men like you and me who were able to reflect God's glory, but who were not glorious in themselves. It's true of us. It's true of the prophets. The prophets, as it was said of John the Baptist, were not the light, but came to testify about the light. Jesus is greater than the prophets the way the sun is greater than the moon. Infinitely greater. And finally, he was greater than the prophets, is greater than the prophets, the way roots are greater than branches. The way roots are greater than branches. Verse 3 again. He's the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He sustains the earth and the universe with his words the way a root system sustains a tree with the sap that it produces and with its strength holding that tree into the ground. That's what Jesus is for the universe. If Jesus were to stop speaking, if He were to stop working, if He were to stop being the roots for the earth, if He were to stop upholding the earth, the earth would drop out of the sky like a rotten walnut branch and crumble into a million pieces. And if Jesus were to stop upholding you, you would crack with the slightest breeze and drop into hell. 
And yet you haven't because he hasn't stopped speaking and he hasn't stopped upholding the world and he's patient for you, waiting for you to turn to him. Jesus upholds all things, he says, by the word of his power. And among the all things that Jesus upholds are these prophets that these Christians were so infatuated with. He upheld the prophets. Yes, when we read the scriptures, when we hear about their lives, when we hear their words, we see of the prophets. If Christianity is a tree, if God's family is a tree, the prophets were among some of the thickest, most sturdy branches. But if those branches aren't connected to the roots, they'll crumble. They're dead wood. And if we, when we read those branches, when we read the prophets, don't connect the branches back to the root, if we don't see how the prophets are pointing us back to one greater than them, then they are dead wood for us. We must understand that Christ is greater than the prophets. Now, why did the author of Hebrews feel compelled to begin with this? He doesn't introduce us to himself. He doesn't offer any greetings to the Hebrews. He just begins with two and a half verses of saying, the prophets are great, but listen, don't think too highly of them. Christ is best of all. Why does he begin that way? And what was it with these people and the prophets? He doesn't tell us for sure. Perhaps it was hero worship the way some of us worship people in our fields that we admire. Perhaps it was a fixation like many people have today with prophetic headline hunting. I'm going to read what the prophet says and then I'm going to read the Jerusalem Post and try to find out how it all matches together. Maybe that was the problem. They were too interested in the prophets. Maybe it was just an infatuation for them because they were of Jewish descent with all things Old Testament. But whatever it was, the author of Hebrews' opening salvo is essentially this. Yes, the prophets were great, but they don't hold a candle to the Son of God. Yes, Moses was a great teacher of the truth but jesus christ is the truth john 14 6 yes elijah performed great miracles at one point he stretched himself out on a young boy and raised him from the dead but jesus christ stretched himself out on the cross to raise us all from our spiritual death Yes, Elisha received a double portion of God's Spirit, but Jesus Christ, John 15, 26, is the giver of the Spirit. Yes, Isaiah was a counselor of kings, but Jesus is the King of kings. Yes, even John the Baptist was greater than anyone else in the Old Testament, Jesus said. He was the best man, but Jesus is and always will be the bridegroom. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is best of all. And the author then has a similar axe to grind in verses 3c and 4. The end of verse 3 and verse 4. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the prophets. And now he says he's also better than the angels. Again, he doesn't tell us everything that was going on with these people, but reading between the lines, we can realize that the recipients of this letter must have had an unhealthy fascination with angels. Perhaps they were like many people today who want to see visions of angels, and they seek those, and then they are happy to get on TV and tell you about this angel that they saw. Never mind the fact that in the Bible when people saw angels, they fell down like dead men rather than getting on television to talk about it. Now the point is not 
to deny that there are angels among us and that they are at work. The point is simply that some people are so concerned with visions of angels and guardian angels and thinking of names, appropriate names for all of the angels that they tend to emphasize the angels and idolize the angels over Jesus himself. Just watch Trinity Broadcasting Network and you will see what the author of Hebrews means. Again, the point is not to minimize the angels. The angels are mighty beings of God. Genesis 19, they call down fire from heaven and destroy cities. Revelation 12, they make war with the devil himself. Luke 1, they bring authoritative messages from God to His people. Isaiah 6, their voices sound like thunder. These are no little small chubby figurines that we think of when we think of angels. These are mighty, powerful beings whom we would fall down like dead men in their presence. But they cannot even wash the feet or untie the sandals of Jesus in their greatness. He is better than the angels. In fact, Isaiah 6-2 tells us that when they are in His presence at the throne of God, they have six wings and with two of them they fly and with two they cover their face and with two they cover their feet because they're so ashamed that perfect as they are, they aren't anything like the sun. They cover their faces in shame. Jesus is infinitely greater than they are. And from verses 3 all the way to the end of the chapter, I want to give you three key words that remind us of the greatness of Jesus over against the angels. The first word is purification. The second word is position. And the third is power. He's greater in all these ways. First, purification. The author begins this sentence in the middle of verse 3, this sentence about the angels. He begins it by comparing Jesus with the angels and saying, when he had made purification for sins. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much greater than the angels. Why does he begin the sentence that way, when he had made purification of sins? It's a subtle reminder that great as the angels are, great as their service is to God, important as they are to the spiritual world that we can't see but that is upholding us, None of the angels died for our sins. None of the angels could have. No angel ever became a man and dwelt among us the way Jesus did. No angel was ever tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. They're without sin to be sure, but they never faced the temptation that Christ did and came through it unscathed. No angel ever bore our sins in His body on the tree. No angel ever died and rose again from the dead on the third day. No. It was Jesus and Jesus alone who made purification of sins. And for this reason, Jesus is better than the angels. The second word is position. Position. Read verse 3 again. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. No angel ever did that either. The angel's position is not sitting at the right hand of God, but bowing at his feet. And this is what the author goes on to explain in verses 5 and 6. In these verses that follow, he's largely quoting the Psalms. That's another feature of this book, that he's constantly quoting the Old Testament to prove his point about Christ. But listen to verses 5 and 6. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? And again, 
I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. He continues this theme down at the end of the chapter, verses 13 and 14. Jesus has a greater position than the angels. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? What's he saying? He's saying that the angels aren't even superior to God's people, verse 14. They're not even superior to God's elect. They are ministering spirits rendering service to God's people. And if they're not even as great as God's people, redeemed people, how much less are the angels to be idolized over the Son of God who's seated at God's right hand? Jesus is greater than the angels in that he made purification in that he has a better position seated at the right hand of God as his son. And thirdly, he's better than the angels in his power. Listen to verses 7 through 12. More quotes from the Psalms. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is, in, is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the works of your hands. All this is referring to Jesus. They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Now listen to what he says. The angels, again, are powerful. Don't underestimate this. They are like flames of fire. They are ministers of God, verse 7. But verse 8, Jesus is on the throne. And no one ever confuses the person seated on the throne with those who minister to him. No one ever confuses the person who sits on the throne with those who minister to him. They don't play hail to the chief for the members of the cabinet. They don't play God save the king in Britain for the members of the parliament. That honor is reserved for him who sits on the throne. And so it is with Christ. We don't sing to the angels. We don't worship the angels. We don't venerate the angels. That honor is reserved for him who sits on the throne. And this isn't just any throne we're talking about either. This is the throne. The throne, verse 10, which existed before the foundation of the earth. The throne, verse 10, from which the decree came to create the heavens and the earth. The throne that will stand, verses 10 through 12, when the foundations of the earth crumble and when the sky is rolled back like a scroll, this throne and this sun seated on it will remain. That's the throne on which Jesus sits. That's the throne from which the angels receive their orders. And so the author says, just by looking at the Psalms and seeing what they say about the throne room of God, we can see that the Son of God, seated at His right hand, indeed seated on the throne with Him, is greater than the angels. And how poor they are who are infatuated with the ministers and not with the King. Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, let's see if we can apply what he's saying to them to what God is saying to us. What we have in Hebrews chapter 1 is a rebuke. This chapter is a rebuke 
It's great theology, it's deep theology, but it is a rebuke for people who are content to nibble on hors d'oeuvres instead of eating to their fill on the entree. That's what it is. It's a rebuke for these early Christians who were satisfied to scrap around in the Old Testament, learning about their ancestry, admiring old heroes, admiring the angels, hearing the stories of Michael and Gabriel, trying to think up clever names for all the other supposed archangels. It's a rebuke for people who are content to do those things all the while the bread and wine of the gospel is spread on the table in front of them to satisfy their souls with Jesus. How foolish they were. Oh, says someone, they were foolish. What a bunch of crazy people settling for angels and altars, for bulls and goats, for festivals and family trees when they had the gospel right at their fingertips. We would never ignore Jesus like that. What foolish people these were. Really? Would we not ignore Jesus like that? If so, then why is it that when one enters the Christian bookstore, he has to hack his way through a deep forest of angel figurines and other superstitious trinkets before he can even find any books? Why is it that when he actually finds the books, he goes to the bestseller aisle and he finds perhaps three books about relationships two more about gender roles, a couple of self-help titles, one on finances, one on fictional issues, and one on end times prophecy, but can't find anything on the person and work of God the Son, who is best of all. Are those things bad? No. The Bible speaks of these things. In fact, they can be quite good if they are brought back and connected biblically with the lordship of Jesus. But these things that we as a Christian culture are so interested in, infatuated with, are not best. Jesus himself is best of all. And yet, though we know that's true and that everyone in every church in America this morning, if you said Jesus is best of all, they would say amen. Or at least think it in their hearts. Even though that's true, it is difficult to find anything directly about him when you go into an average Christian bookshop. It's amazing. Why? Because we, like the Hebrews, have been willing to settle for second and third and fourth best. And in the end, what this book is going to teach us is that second best may kill you. Second best may lead you astray from the truth because like all the Judaistic interests of the recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews, one could read and write and talk about all today's religious top ten booksellers or book topics without ever thinking about, speaking of, or maybe even believing in Jesus. You could talk all day about relationships and gender roles and all these things without believing in Jesus. You can talk about angels and prophets all day long without believing in the Son. And these secondary issues that we become so infatuated with can kill us. And for many people, they have. And American Christianity, by and large, not across the board, but by and large, has settled for second best. In fact, we need not even speak about American Christianity in general or even go to the bookstore to discover that this is true. I'm going to include myself in what I'm about to say, and I want to say it with love, but I want to say to you that if you just listen to the conversations in our hallways and in many of our prayer meetings in our very own church, you can discover that people are willing to settle for second and third and fourth best. 
Because when we can pry ourselves away on Sunday morning from talking about our aches and pains and the ball games and the problems at work, our conversation, even then, is still often about what's good, but not about what's best. In other words, we're comfortable talking about sharing prayer requests and praises about how God kept us safe, how God healed our cough, how God paid our bills, and we should talk about these things and praise God for them. But rare indeed is a conversation between two people saying, Let me tell you what I saw of Christ in my scripture reading this week. Let me tell you what the gospel means to me and how I saw it more clearly last Wednesday night. Those conversations are rare indeed. And out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I'm afraid that we're a lot more like these Hebrew believers than we might think. I'm afraid that we've been all too content with snacking on the outer crusts of Christianity rather than pressing in to fill our souls with those things that are sweetest and best. I'm afraid our appetites have grown slim and our souls have become scrawny, feeding on second best. So I just wonder this morning, and as we enter into a new year, what are you feeding your soul? What are you feeding your soul The crust or the filling? Are you spending your energy, your time, your reading, your zeal on some good but secondary Christian issue? Unfulfilled prophecy, angels, family values, women's spirituality, hell, music, marriage, financial freedom. Are you filling up on something like that? Focusing your attention on some secondary issue. Nibbling on the crust rather than feeding on Jesus, who is the sweet filling of truth. Finally, let me say that some of you are more malnourished even than the Hebrews were. Some of you, your souls aren't being satisfied even with angels and prophets who at least have some eternal importance. Rather, your souls are satisfied with mere trifles, with hobbies, with possessions, with endless hours sitting mindless in front of the television, with just making it through the weekends. These are the things that satisfy some of us. And all the while our Bibles sit, which proclaim the everlasting message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, neglected on our bedside tables. So let me just ask you, whoever you are, if you are tired this morning of settling for second best, if you are tired for settling for junk food when there is a table spread with bread and wine of Jesus Christ ready for you to feast on for eternity, are you ready to eat real food again? Are you ready? You won't find it by trading in your remote control for some spiritual hobby horse. That won't satisfy. But you will be satisfied if you begin to feed from God's Word on Jesus who is real spiritual food, on Jesus who is better than the prophets and better than the angels, in fact, best of all. Isaiah, the prophet, pointing forward to Jesus, says this, and with this we close. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good 
and delight yourself in abundance.